Welcome from all of us at Albuquerque Reformed Church, a particular congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church located in New Mexico. We thank you for joining us for this week's sermon. For more information about Albuquerque Reformed Church or to contribute to its ministry, visit abqreformed.org. And now, we invite you to open your Bible and listen to the preached word. Last week, we saw a seven-part question by the Sadducees uh, to Jesus. By their seven-part question, they meant to demonstrate to Jesus that there is no resurrection. Uh, There is no life after death. This life, is, this life is all that one has got. There is nothing beyond it. There is nothing above it. That's what the Sadducees thought. That's what the Sadducees uh, taught to people. That's what they thought. That's what they taught. But if someone has seen heaven for what it is, uh, then it is Jesus. If someone has known the mind of God, then it is Jesus. If someone has known the ins and outs of theology, then it is Jesus. Jesus demonstrated to the Sadducees that there is a resurrection. And uh, there is a resurrection, there is life after death. And those who are worthy to attain that age will not marry and neither are given in marriage. But they will be like angels and will be the sons and daughters of God. By the end of that encounter with Jesus, the Sadducees were done asking with questions. They said, teacher, you have spoken well. Because they realized it's just futile to argue with questions. Uh, it, it is futile to argue with Jesus. You cannot argue with Jesus and you can win. Jesus knows ins and outs of theology. He knows everything. There is no question which baffled him. There is no question which disturbed him. But every time people came up with questions, Jesus answered him wonderfully. And those who were uh, genuine, those who are genuine seekers, they received uh, genuine answers and they were satisfied. But those who are not genuine seekers, those who are not genuine seekers of truth, Jesus uh, shut their mouth. So they said, Teacher, you have spoken well, and they dared not question him anymore. Have you been in a discussion with someone where you have shown to the other that they were in the wrong and they understood it clearly, but they did not acknowledge that they were in the wrong? It often happens in a parent-child relationship. The child knows that he has been caught uh, red-handed and that he is wrong, but he does not want to acknowledge it. Something similar is happening here. The Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes know that Jesus is not a mere man. He is not a mere man. No one has done the works which he did. No one preached like him. No one spoke like like him. No one knew the mind of God as he did. So they know that he is more than a human, but they don't want to acknowledge it. They know it, that he is more than a human. He is not a mere human. But they don't want to acknowledge it. But Jesus is not done with them. Jesus is not done with them. 
Sometimes I hear people who have grown up in church saying, Pastor, I don't want to come to church for a period of time because I need some time for myself to figure out my life. Now, if you say something like that, then then either you don't know who Jesus is or you know who he is, but you don't want to acknowledge it and surrender your life to him. But my dear congregants, Jesus is not done with you. Jesus is not done with you. And here in our passage this morning, he is answering two questions. First, who is he? Who is Jesus? That's the first question. Who Jesus is? Who is he? Second question, what does true spirituality look like? What does true spirituality look like? The first question, who Jesus is? This is the first point. And this is the whole point why Luke is even writing this gospel. There are four gospels uh, in the scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all four of them ask, all four of them answers who Jesus is, who he is, uh, what did he do, why did he come to this earth, uh, why he had to die. All of these are the questions uh, which are answered by first four gospels. So Luke is answering the same question, who is Jesus? When we compare Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 and, and Acts chapter 1 verse 1, we see that Luke wrote this gospel to Theophilus, a Gentile, just like you and me, a Gentile. He was a Gentile and Luke wrote this gospel to Theophilus so that he will know who Jesus is and what he has done. And, this, and that's the same purpose this gospel has for you and me. Uh, Luke is writing this gospel so that you will know who Jesus is. Luke wants to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of David and the Savior of this world. And even before Jesus was born, the angel Gabriel visited Mary and said, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Then in, then in Luke chapter 9, we see that Peter calls him the Christ of God. Then in Luke chapter 18, we see that a blind recognized who Jesus was, despite being blind. For he called him Jesus, the son of David. Luke is demonstrating that Jesus is the son of David who was to come. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes have, have refused to acknowledge him to be the son of David, to be the Messiah. They came up with so many questions to him and Jesus answered every one of them, but still they did not believe in him. But now Jesus has a question for them. All this time, they were the ones who were asking questions to him. But now Jesus has a question for them. What's the question? Look at verse 41 to 44. He said, How can they say that Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? 
This is a quote from Psalm 110. And the whole argument is from the first phrase in verse 1, which reads, The Lord said to my Lord. Now, when I was working on my sermon and when I came to Psalm 110, for a moment I thought, let me go and check how modern Jews uh, interpret this psalm. Uh, so they translate the first phrase as the word of the Lord to my master. So that's how the Jewish Bible would translate uh, this uh, phrase in Psalm 110, 110. The word of the Lord to my master. Now you can translate the first phrase uh, like that, like this. That's fine. The first Lord is uh, Yahweh in Hebrew, and NKJV puts it in capital letters. And the second Lord is Adonai in Hebrew, and the NKJV puts it in small letters. And Adonai could be translated, the Greek, Adon the Hebrew Adonai could be translated as master or as Lord. In the Hebrew Bible, sometimes the word Adonai is, is used for God as well as sometimes it is used for men with authority over other people. So masters, those who are servants, they would be called Lord. So the, so the Jews translate it as the word of the Lord to my master. Now the question is, who is this person who is called my master as in a Jewish Bible or my Lord in the Christian Bible? The modern-day Jews uh, scan through the whole Bible and find that in Genesis 23:6, the people of the Lord, the, the people of the land, call Abraham as my master, and hence they apply this psalm to Abraham. The modern Jews. Oh. Now, this is a very bad way of interpreting the Scripture. You just scan through the whole Bible for a matching word, and the moment you find that word, you immediately say, "This is that." But the psalm itself shows that this is a messianic psalm. This is not a psalm about Abraham. This is a messianic psalm, just like Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, we read that Yahweh said, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Similarly, in Psalm 10, we read something very similar, Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, uh, we read, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. So if you look at Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, both of, this, both of the Psalms are talking about the messianic king, the anointed king. And then we see uh, in Psalm 110 that this king is also a priest forever. He is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he is both king and a priest. What does a priest do? A priest atones for the sins of his people. This psalm, then this psalm is not talking about Abraham. Abraham was not a priest on the order of Melchizedek. 
but we see that the rest of the scripture shows us that Jesus atoned for the sins of the people. So Psalm 110 is about the messianic king. Psalm 110 is about Jesus. So this is a messianic psalm, Psalm 110, and this was considered as such even by the Jews of Jesus' day. Now, the argument is simple. It's a very simple argument. The Lord said to my Lord, if the first Lord is Yahweh, the question is, who is the second Lord? If the first Lord is Yahweh, who is the second Lord? If this is a messianic psalm and it was considered as such for centuries, uh, even by the Jews, and if the, if the Messiah is David's son, then how is he David's Lord? If the Messiah is David's son, Messiah is other name for Christ. If Christ is David's son, then how is he David's Lord? Some may say, what's the big deal? A father can call his son Lord. But not in that culture. Not in that culture. In that culture, a father did not call his son Lord. But here, David calls the Messiah his Lord. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. And by implication, scripture is showing us that the Messiah is both David's son and David's Lord. He is both human and divine. He is both man and God. The teachers of the law thought that they knew their scriptures. But Jesus shows us here that they did not know the scriptures. The people who claimed to know the scriptures, they did not know the scriptures. The one who was to come out of the loins of David was also going to be the David's Lord. He is going to be God incarnate in human flesh. And now he has come to his people in the person of Jesus but they refused to acknowledge him as such. Jesus answered all their questions which were put forward to, to him by them. But when he asked them a question, they did not have an answer. So the question is, who is Jesus? He is David's son and David's Lord. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. On that day, about 3,000 Jews acknowledged Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. Luke wrote his gospel to the Gentiles so that Gentiles would know him as their Lord and Savior. That means Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Receive him as your Lord and Savior because one day you are going to stand before him. One day God is going to judge the whole world by the man appointed by him, that is Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this is the promise of the gospel that if you run to him, he will run to you. If you lift your hands, he will hold you up. Scripture shows us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. While we were yet sinners, when we were living in sin, when we were away from him, when we were walking, when we were going far from him, that Jesus died for us. 
while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. Not only he died for us, but he rose again on the third day. And now he is inviting you to come to him, to receive him, receive him by faith. Come and be united to him by faith and he will receive you into his kingdom. He will adopt you into his family as sons and daughters. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord God Almighty. He is David's son and David's Lord. He must be your Lord. Acknowledge him to be your king, your Lord. The second question which uh, we are answering here is, what does true spirituality looks like? What does true spirituality look like? Or how does true spirituality look like? The first thing which we uh, see, which we saw here was who Jesus is. The second thing which we see, which we see here is what true spirituality look like. Look at verses 45 to 47. Uh, first, uh, then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. What we are seeing here is what false spirituality looks like first what false spirituality looks like first. False spirituality is often concerned with mere externals. False spirituality is often concerned with mere externals. Now, it is not wrong for our inner person and inner devotion towards God to show itself in external acts of devotion and piety. But it is a problem when our external religion does not correspond with internal reality. It is not wrong for our inner person and inner devotion toward God to show itself in external acts of devotion, piety, and obedience. But it is a problem when our external religion does not correspond with internal reality. Jesus says to his, Jesus says to his disciples to be beware of the scribes. In other words, there is a danger if you imitate the scribes. All their religion is a mere external show, but their hearts are full of wickedness and violence. The scribes loved going around in long robes. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, Jesus says, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Phylacteries is a kind of box which they tie on their head. And right hand which consists of uh, commandments uh, from the scripture. Sometimes you will see uh, Jewish rabbis in Jerusalem having a kind of a box on their head and uh, kind of a thing on their head, uh, on their hand. And sometimes even IDF, Israeli, you know, defense forces, when they go in war, sometimes they would have. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, we read, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlets between your eyes. 
So they made a kind of box out of leather which would contain commandments from Torah and would bind them on their head and right hand. And together with a long robe, they would have a distinct appearance. But Jesus says that they do it to show men that they are that they are spiritual. Now the question is, when God said, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as a frontlets between your eyes, is that literal in the sense of, uh, what's the point of that? Is the point that you shall have the commandment of God in your, in your heart and in your mind and you, should, and you shall practice it uh, in your own life? Or the point of that is just to bind that on your head and your hand and just walk around and to show to everyone that you are you're spiritual or you are religious. No, the point is that you hide the commandments of God in your, ha- in your heart. You understand those commandments. You understand that by your mind and practice it in your own life. That's the point. But they were binding that on, on their head and uh, binding that on their hands and with a long robe, they were walking around uh, showing to everyone that they were more spiritual than others. But Jesus says that they do it to show men that they are spiritual. They gave a distinct appearance that they are more spiritual than others. They loved greetings in the marketplaces uh, they loved because they thought that they are highly spiritual, that they are more spiritual. They are on a different pedestal altogether. In fact, they expected people to treat them differently because they thought that they are uh, that they deserve better compared to others. And then they desired the best seats in the synagogues and the best seats at the feast. They loved the praise of men as most religious and most learned. And when they prayed in public, they made long prayers so that people would know that they are more spiritual and are more closer to God than others. Philip Ryken speaks about a prominent politicians, a politician who offered this kind of prayer at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. The politician made sure that the cameras were rolling so that the photos would get back to the Jewish constituency back home. The photograph he saw of this incident was telling. He says it was shot at a wider angle, showing not only the politician at prayer, but also the crush of photographers trying to capture the moment on film. It was not so much a prayer as it was a publicity stunt. The prayer itself was not important, only the, only the being seen to pray. Now, if someone knew to pray for a long time, do you know who it was? It was Jesus. He prayed the whole night. He prayed the whole night. He prayed often. But where? In private. In private. He prayed the whole night. Uh, in Luke uh, chapter 5, verse 16, we read that he often withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. He often withdrew himself. He was doing ministry. A lot of people were coming to him. Large crowds were following him and he was teaching them. He was preaching. 
but whenever he had to pray he would withdraw himself into the wilderness that means into the private and would pray if you notice uh, in the gospels we do not read that he prayed long prayers in the public we re- we read about his teaching we read we read about his preaching his miracles and works in public but he did not pray to be seen by other people he did pray he did teach his disciples to pray but when it came to public prayer we don't read that he prayed for hours and hours uh, in front of men in fact when long prayers are offered primarily for the benefit of anyone who might be watching they are an offense to god but this is the kind of prayers which were offered by the pharisees and scribes but at the same time jesus says that they devoured uh the houses of vulnerable widows they devoured the houses of vulnerable women vulnerable uh, widows perhaps some of these widows might have come to these religious leaders uh, thinking that they would uh, help them uh because they are so vulnerable there is no one uh, to look after them uh, that perhaps these uh, scribes uh, would give them some good counsel but uh, they were using that opportunity to know the bank balance of these uh, poor widows and they were expecting uh, they were hoping that these widows when they die they would perhaps uh, transfer the title of their property to these scribes so they roamed around in long robes loved greet- greetings in the marketplaces desired the best places uh, prayed long but uh, war rebellion and violence and violence was in their heart so that's why jesus says beware of the scribes do not imitate them it is so easy to develop a desire to show others how much we know scripture or how well we can pray in public it is so easy to feel special because we do things for god uh, we do things uh, for god because we know the scripture uh but these sins all go together ostentatious lifestyle the ambitious social climbing and the pretentious intercession and they all add up to deadly hypocrisy how often we fall into the same trap by thinking about what people see what other people see rather than what god sees how often we fall into the same trap by thinking about what other people see what other people think rather than what god sees but jesus says beware or in other words watch out for these sins of hypocrisy in verses 45 to 47 we looked at what false spirituality looks like now in the next four verses we see what true spirituality and true devotion towards god look like look at verses 1 to 4 and he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and he saw and he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites so he said truly i say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for god but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had 
there are two classes of people here. One class has rich people in it and the other class has this poor widow in it. The rich have made the offering out of their abundance, but this poor widow has put in all the livelihood she had. If someone was weak and vulnerable, then it was this poor widow. She did not have much to leave. She did not have social security, neither Medicare. But she is the perfect counter example to the hypocrisy to the hypocrisy of the scribes. The scribes wanted to look spiritual among the people, but they were not really willing to sacrifice their income for the kingdom of God. In fact, they were devouring a widow's property. But this poor widow, whose name we don't even know, was willing to sacrifice all for the sake of the kingdom of God. She put in her two mites, and that's all what she had for herself. For this widow, it cost her everything. Perhaps she put in her wage of that day, whatever she might have made, or, or yesterday, or whatever she had that week, we don't know. Rich people also came and put in their money. Some people might have been impressed seeing, the, seeing their contribu contribution in the treasury, but Jesus was not at all impressed. For the rich, it hardly made any dent in what they had. That's the whole point. For the rich, it hardly made any dent in what they had. Hardly there was any sacrifice on their part. In comparison to what they made, in comparison to what they made monthly or yearly, their offering was not at all proportional. And Jesus noticed it. Don't you think this is amazing? That poor widow came there, she was putting there, and the rich people were also putting, the, putting their share. And Jesus noticed it. The thing is that Jesus notices everything. Jesus notices everything, whether it is small, whether it is big, whether it is trivial in our eyes, Jesus notices everything. Jesus notices every trivial thing which we do for God or which we refrain from doing for God. The eyes of the, the, eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. That's what the Bible teaches us. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Jesus said uh, elsewhere, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If it is true that we always put our money where our heart is, then one of the ways to tell what is inside us is by what we give to God. If it is true that we always put our money where our heart is, if you're passionate about something, if you, want, if you really like something, you will put your money there. No matter how expensive the thing is, you will put your money there. That's how some people get into debt. They... They look at things, they like things, they love things, which is beyond their means. And uh, despite the threat of getting into debt, they still go ahead and buy that. What does that show? That show that their heart is there. That is the thing where their heart is. Uh, 
So if it is true that we always put our money where our heart is, then one of the ways to tell what is inside us is by what we give to God. However, we have to measure this, this not according to our standards. We compare our giving to what others give. But Jesus shows us that the right standard is what we give to God in comparison to our own financial situation. This is, the one, this is one of the basic principles of God's economy. The point of the passage is not to set a percentage for every Christian or compare oneself with what the widow has given. Not everyone is called to give everything the way this widow has given. But the point is to have a heart for God and a heart for giving. Giving to, giving to God is the right thing to do because God has lavished his love upon his people. God has lavished his love upon his people. Is there anything which can be compared to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus? Can you even imagine the second person of the Trinity dwelling in the presence of God for all eternity, enjoying all the privileges of heaven, uh, sitting in all the glory for all eternity, uh, coming down, taking the form of a uh, human and uh, taking the form of a servant, undergoing the mysteries of this life, the wrath of God. Why should the second person of the Trinity, why should Jesus undergo the wrath of God? But he underwent the wrath of God. Why? Because he loved you. Because... He did not wanted you to perish in your own sin. Because he did not wanted you to perish in your sin. And today, because he lives, you will live forever. Because he lives, you will live forever in the power of the Holy Spirit. Can you compare... Uh, this lavish love of God for anything anything you give to Him in return, there is no comparison. There is no amount of money which can be compared to what God has given in Christ Jesus who laid His, down, who laid his life down for our sins, for your sins. Given everything that God has given us, we should offer our life to Him. Not just mere tithe or little money. We should offer our life. We should offer our very life to Him. Sacrificial giving for God's sacrificial grace is a small token of our love for the greatest gift He has given us, that is His Son, Jesus Christ. May we gladly offer our life and much more to Him as we pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you once again for showing us who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He is God himself. He is God incarnate in human flesh. He is our God. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our King. Lord, we confess that Jesus is our King. Jesus is our Lord. It is He 
who saves us from our sins and this is a good news because lord there is nothing which we can bring to you no gifts no power no talents there is nothing which we can bring to you lord what we bring is ourselves our broken life the life which is broken by sin the life which is marred by sin and pain and disobedience this is what we can bring to you but lord we thank you that you have lavished your love upon us you have not even called us to come up with our own works of righteousness but lord you have invited us you have called us into your banquet you have called us invited us into your supper and you have said come and lord we come to you in the name of lord jesus christ lord we come to you with empty hand so that you would fill us by your holy spirit you would fill our hearts and minds by your holy spirit lord we offer our life to you lord we pray that whatever we have in our lives whether it's gifts or talents or life people friends our own life whatever we have lord we pray that we would gladly offer all of these things uh, uh all of these things we would, we would gladly offer all of these things to you and uh, we would offer much more because lord you have given us 10 times more jillion uh, times more than what we offer so lord receive our own life we ask this prayer in the name of our lord jesus christ amen thank you for joining us if you were blessed by this sermon we invite you to visit us at abqreformed.org where you'll find more information about our ministry we look forward to you joining us again online or in person Until then may peace comfort and grace be given to you through our Lord Jesus Christ